Have you ever tried to kick a nasty habit? A nasty, unhealthy habit? Maybe smoking? Chewing tobacco? Alcohol? Maybe you're a pleasure seeker, so you're trying to kick sexual immorality? Maybe you're addicted to video games. Maybe you can't stop cheating. Can't stop lying. Can't stop overeating. If any of you have tried to kick a nasty habit, you know that while letting go of your old life and your old ways is a good thing, you know that it is not always easy. The lure of the old life calls our names. And if we are honest with ourselves, we sadly can identify with these words of Scripture. Proverbs 25.11 says, Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Our passage this morning is a dose of reality about how difficult leaving the old life can be. And we are back in our series to the book of Exodus. And I invite you to turn there to Exodus chapter 15, found on page 57 of the Black Bibles right there in front of you if you're using one of those. And the main point for today is that the only way to finally leave your old life behind is really to trust in God who gives you a new one and to trust in Him who sustains you in it. Today we see that God wants us to trust in Him as sustainer. Uh, Exodus, along with uh, the other uh, first five books, or really Exodus is one of the first five books of Scripture, and those are written by uh, largely Moses. And he had written them down as an account of the history that God had been working, the history leading up to creation, uh, and then the history of the patriarchs, and the history of the deliverance of the Israelites as he was leading them into the land of promise. And here Moses is writing for the people that they would have an account of what of the mighty works of God done to his people, all according to his grace. So to catch you up in terms of the background here, the people of Israel had, a sober, had many sobering opportunities to trust in God as sustainer. Exodus is about God intervening and delivering his people out of slavery to Egypt, where the king of Egypt, who was in fact seen as divine, persecuted God's people, enslaved God's people, and even tried to wipe out God's people through a slow genocide. But the true king of heaven, the one and only true king, had plans to form for himself a people for himself, holy unto his name. And so God draws his people out of Egypt, bringing plagues against Pharaoh. The book of Exodus is nothing less than a showdown between the king of Egypt versus the king of all creation. And then you even see this back and forth between Pharaoh and his magicians and God and his prophet Moses. And after the Lord sends plagues against Pharaoh, the king of Egypt finally lets the people go, but the tension climaxes at the Red Sea. And there Pharaoh changes his mind and decides to re-enslave the people of God. And imagine just being in their position, the people of Israel. They leave a city to wander in the desert. Eventually they go to the Red Sea according to God's command and they see Pharaoh pursuing them from behind. They have water in front of them and Pharaoh's chariots behind them. And through the sovereign work of the one true God, God parts the waters as people go through on dry land. And as Pharaoh and his chariots pursue them, God closes the waters over them. 
As chapter 14, verse 30 says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. If you look, if you skim there at Genesis chapter, uh, sorry, Exodus chapter 15, you see there that that chapter is a beautiful song of praise to the Lord for His strength, His glorious power, His majesty, His holiness, His steadfast love, and His sovereign reign. And just place yourself in the people of Israel's position. Imagine looking at the sea where they once heard the hooves of horror, now they see a sea of serenity. Imagine the glory. Imagine the joy, the overwhelming joy, and the celebration as horse and rider are thrown into the sea as chapter 15 celebrates. What a scene that would be of God's majestic deliverance. So imagine their celebration, dance, Gangnam style, whatever it is that they're doing, and you guys realize, though, that as they glory, one second, as they whip their last hole around, they turn and look forward to what lies ahead. And in a moment, their joy turns to serious worry and anxiety because they face the unknown. And you're supposed to feel this, this, uh, this incongruency, the fact that this doesn't match as you read chapter 15, this glorious shouts of praise, and then in our section today, as it begins there, verse 22 to 27, that first section there, they then doubt the Lord right after they witness His majesty in deliverance. Imagine the prospect of traveling through the desert with your babies, with your grandparents, with your cattle, not having food and drink. Uh, scholars estimate that there are anywhere between 1 to 3 million people, and we know certainly this is possible, at the Million Man March in 1995, uh, there were 1.1 million people gathered together. Uh, and and, this is, and the, the way that they number this is by professional people counters, crowd counters, and they do the calculations and they measure, and it's been confirmed not only through the African, African American organizations that gathered the people, but also through the people who had uh, professionally counted them. So the million people, the million man march, so certainly it's possible here that there would be one to three million people uh, coming out of Egypt, all of the people of God, the Hebrews. So we see how they wonder whether or not they're going to be sustained as they wander through the desert. And I can understand why the people go from glorying in God to then grumbling against him. This brings us to point number one. This is point number one, the sojourners grumble. The sojourners grumble. The people's grumble is a grumble of survival. And they grumble, grumble all throughout our passage today. And if we, were, if we were to read chapters 1 all the way through the song and then come immediately once again to our passage today, you would see how incongruent, how incompatible it is for a delivered people to act. God the Lord, the sovereign Lord over all, the one true and mighty God who works mighty deeds, the Lord who makes promises, and the Lord who keeps them, the Lord who is with His people in a pillar of cloud, by day and a pillar of fire by night. He is the Lord who leads them, the Lord who guides them, who shepherds them every step of the way. And as they know, as God has proven that God is on their side, yet they grumble. And our passage today speaks of three episodes of their grumbling. So as we see them moving from place to place, so we see their grumbling goes along with them. Look at 1522 for the first location here. It says there, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea 
you know, they're setting out their, their life of wandering. It's just part of the sojourner's life now. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. So there the problem is that the water was extremely bitter, which would indicate that uh, the, the, the water was toxic or poison. And so they named that place Mara, which means bitter. Their response there in 1524, look there, and the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? So that's the first episode. Let's go to the second episode of grumbling there in 16.1. They went eventually to the wilderness of sin. And so at this point in time, as they move to the second location, they are about a month and a half into their escape out of Egypt. So let's just say around 40 days or something like that. And then they grumble again. Look there in verse 2. And the whole congregation of, the, of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And then you turn over to 17.1. They go to a place called Rephidim. This is the third location. And again, there was no water for the people to, to drink. So in verse 2, therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And then in verse 3, the people grumbled against Moses. This grumbling is not just a mild complaint. You know, like you coffee snobs, uh, like you when you grumble, when you tolerate bad coffee. That's not the grumbling that's going on here. This grumbling is a grumbling of rebellion and displeasure with the will of God. Their hearts are not happy. In fact, as they get deeper and deeper into the Exodus, deeper and deeper into the desert, their grumbling gets louder and louder. Look back at 1524. First, their complaint is, what shall we drink? And it is, quote, the people, unquote, who are grumbling against Moses only. Yeah, it's relatively mild. But look there at 16.2. Go and flip over 16.2. It's now the whole congregation that's grumbling. And not only against Moses, but Aaron too. Both of their God-appointed leaders here. And then in verse 3, we see the substance of their complaint, and it is ugly. Speaking to Moses, they say, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. You can imagine that their struggle is intense here. What God had meant to be their path of deliverance, they see as a path to their own desert graveyard. We know that Jesus says, out of the mouth the heart speaks. And so we see there that their heart is leaking, so to speak. As they doubt God's wisdom, his faithful presence, they blurred out what they judged to be the better solution. If only the hand of the Lord had destroyed us in Egypt, that would have been better. And you see the why here. You see their desires why they would rather go back into slavery, because there we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. They look at God's hand of deliverance that they had just experienced and witnessed, and they say, we don't care, hand of deliverance, hand of destruction, we don't care, because we have the meat pots, because we had bread. So just think, whatever your favorite meat is, you got the Brazilian skewers, I can picture it now, you got a red, juicy prime rib, whatever it is, you can understand what they are longing for as they wander, starving, hungry, wondering whether or not the Lord is going to really deliver them. And their grumbling reveals right, that in their hearts they have traded the promises of God for temporary comfort. You remember what the promises of God were? God had promised His very own people to grow them into a multitude. And we know that they are already a multitude, but He was going to just continue going on and go, go ahead and doing that. Uh, God had also promised that he was going to give them their own land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that's very productive. 
He had also promised that he was going to bless the whole entire world through his people, eventually fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God had promised that he was going to be with them, that he would be their Lord, that he would be their guide, and, and they would be his people, his bride. And they basically look at all that and they say, no, we don't want that. Hand of deliverance? No. Hand of destruction? We don't really care. Israel here is saying, forget what lies ahead. We would have been better off had God struck us dead, just as he did the Egyptians, back in Egypt. Then at least we would have died with good food in our bellies, food enough to eat. Christian, don't we find ourselves looking forward to our own God-given path of deliverance. But oftentimes, in our own sin, judge it to be more of our own desert graveyard. We know know that sanctification, or the process of God making us holy unto His name, sometimes can be a very difficult process. And you know what I'm tempted to do this? I'm I'm most tempted to wrongly see God's deliverance of me as His destruction of me when I'm called to take up my cross and follow Jesus, as Oscar preached for us last week. In those moments, I know for a fact that in my past, I've looked back and longed for the old life. Longed for the metaphorical meat pots of my own life, of the old kingdom. This is hard. And so, I need to turn back to that. The stuff of the old kingdom. Whatever our lives were, B.C. or before Christ, Whatever we found comfort, comfort in then, we desire to really turn back to. It, it's, it, it appears easier, doesn't it? As if the grass were greener on the other side of the waters. I have a friend who very honestly tells me, at times he wonders if following Jesus is really worth it. He says he is a Christian, he's a member of the church. I think he is a Christian. But what happens is, in the workplace, he hears of his co-workers having fun, partying. They tell them about how they mess around sexually with whomever they please, chasing after whatever they please, pleasure, money, security, riches, or just living after their own desires. And he often thinks, gosh, you know, the grass is greener on the other side, in the old kingdom. Again, I appreciate the honesty because that's really what a lot of Christians, maybe even you here today, feel in sanctification, in this process, in this journey. He believes, his brother believes, but he wrestles against his own sinful self and he prays that God would help him believe even more. I'm sure to some degree we all covet the snapshots of our old kingdom life. You know, it's like when God delivers us out of the old kingdom, he he, he calls us, let's go. And we sometimes sneak those little snapshots or snaps, if you're on Snapchat, into our pockets as we walk out of the old kingdom and towards the new And so we covet. Sometimes we take them out in difficulty and say, that's what life was really like in the old kingdom. But friends, that is exactly what they are. They are mere snaps that never tell the whole story. And sin wants nothing more. Satan wants nothing more than to dupe you into thinking that the snapshot is the real deal. You see those billboards on the 605 about casinos or 60. Uh, Oftentimes, you know, they'll show couples having fun. Maybe even suggesting to you that certain things might happen between you and someone of the opposite sex as you sip champagne. The billboard says, come to such and such a place. Enjoy the freedom of gambling, the freedom of sexual exploration. What they don't tell you about is gambling addiction, 
which some of you have family members that have been deeply involved in these things. What they don't tell you about is STDs. What they don't tell you about is how bad you feel after you gamble away your family's hard-earned money. What they don't tell you about is how you lose the trust of your family. How your very loved ones expected to follow your leadership now have to take the lead themselves and carve out bank accounts so that your loved ones, or maybe even you, don't get that money. They don't tell you about the stress you feel when collectors come after you for your car and for your house. They don't tell you about even how when casinos are erected, the crime rate in the cities go down and how societies decrease in terms of standard of living. They don't tell you any of that, those billboards. Well, you know what? For the Israelites, the billboard was come to Egypt, meat pots for life, buttered bread. That's what's held out in their snapshots. What's hidden, though, is the fact that Egypt slaughtered Hebrew babies just as they did animals to fill their meat pots. As Pharaoh said to the people of Egypt in chapter 1, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. It is true that meat pots and bread might have been there for the immediate generation, but going back meant putting every generation in jeopardy. All they needed to do was just look at their babies to see God's faithful provision of them. What they couldn't see was that was their slave labor. What they couldn't see was their beating. What they couldn't see was their suffering. And what they couldn't see anymore were the promises of God because of their own sin. Amidst their grumblings and complaints of hunger under the rule of God, they had forgotten what it was like to groan and to cry out to God because of their own slavery. You know, friends, that this is the same with sin. Our very own sin. When we pull out our own snapshots of our old kingdom life, when sanctification and walking after Jesus is hard, that's exactly the same thing. Our snapshots are billboards that really lead to our very own death. So you want to turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 here. If you're sitting next to someone who uh, is not so familiar with flipping around to the books of the Bible, help them get to Romans chapter 8 verse 13. And we have this reminder that the Israelites needed to know. This is what it says. This is the reality that that they needed to remember. Similar to what Oscar talked about last week. You know, those commercials. They leave the fine print at the end and they zip through that. But here we want to do exactly what Jesus says and lay it out really clear. Verse 13. This is what it says. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. You will die. So when we are longing for the old world, that's what it leads to, death. If you turn, go to Proverbs 6, verse 27. Proverbs 6, verse 27. Here we're just looking at examples, seeing how Jesus, how the Lord is so clear to remind us of these things. Proverbs 6, verse 27. Here in this proverb, actually the first, much of the Proverbs, he's talking about flirting and even committing adultery uh, with the world's wisdom. And it's personified as this harlot who calls our name. And here he says, you know, he reminds us that we cannot play with fire and not get burned. This is what it says. Can a man carry fire next to his chest? Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Basically, he's saying, look, you can't play with fire and not get burned. You can't play with the the so-called harlot of the world and not put coals on your very own body that you want to press up against her. It leads to death. It's amazing how 
even though we leave with these snapshots of our own old life, our own sin, we forget the darkness of sin, the evils of sin. We forget how enslaved we were at one point in time, ruled by uncontrollable desire, all hours of the day dedicated to chasing after this thing. We forget the shame that inevitably follows after we've committed this sin, the sexual immoral immoral life, when it gets exposed. We forget the hurt that it brings upon others. We forget how it jeopardizes all of our relationships and how at that point in time, when things come out, our children know the effects of it. They feel the weight of it and they suffer the consequences of your very own sin. We, we forget that we are not able to live freely in the light of the gospel and how wonderful that feels. Instead, we run to the darkness. If you want to take out revenge, let's say that's what you struggle with in the old life, uh, carrying out your own justice, we forget how hellishly frightening our very own rage is when we give in to anger. We forget if what we struggle with is, is the power that Egypt offers or the old life offers. We forget, though, that in our, even in our own lives we forget what it's like to be run over by other people who have exercised their power and authority in very bad ways. All these things we just, uh, Israelites forget, and we know exactly what they're thinking. And so we grumble. This is, this is the old life that we long for, the snapshots that we long for, as God has us going in this particular other direction, this good direction. And so you see very much the struggle here that the Israelites are wrestling with. They want to go back. They're attracted to these old things. But in God's faithfulness, the Lord uses this to test them. This is point two, the sojourners tested you know, God is so kind here. We, like the Israelites, as we are leaving the old kingdom life, we leave with the snapshots of our old kingdom life. And he knows, of course, that we're stowing these little things away in our pockets. And at the right time, no doubt he calls us to leave things immediately. But at the right time, sometimes the more hidden things he knows that we're wrestling with. But at the right time, he brings them out of our own pockets and say, you see this dirtiness. You see this ugliness. And now I want you to deal with it. And find grace for those particular things. And the Lord is doing this, in this for the Israelites right here. In the desert wanderings, God tested the people of Israel to see whether or not they would wholly depend and rely on God to be their satisfaction, their supplier. Or whether or not they're going to rely on something else for deliverance. The Bible says that God uses trials to help us see these things, right? So in James 1 verse 2, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the trials work, therefore, to make us complete. It doesn't mean perfected, as in no sin, but it fulfills its ultimate purpose there in heaven. Thinking about the Israelites, God had tested them to see if they simply loved the earthly benefits that come with being the people of God, or whether they truly love the God who provides these benefits. If you think about the Israelite position, right? It's easy to love deliverance from slavery. If you love your very own people, let's say you're nationalistic, you're patriotic, you, you know, you're going to love the multitude of your people. And you might even hate the Egyptians. You could have even gone along just to see what would happen because, you know, what are your other options after all? You know, you could stay in the land without your family. 
You could stay in the land without your people. You're going to live the slave life in loneliness. Well, when God parted the waters, you could probably watch the Lord work and then rejoice in seeing Pharaoh and his chariots destroyed. You see, friends, you can do all of that, but not love the Lord of deliverance. And so in the Exodus episodes here, the Lord tests his people to see if they would not only love the blessings of the Lord, but truly love the Lord who delivers, who gives these very blessings to begin with. This is God's stated purpose of testing, to determine their love for him. This is why on the front end of the Ten Commandments, which we read about in a couple weeks, God reminds them that he alone is the Lord. And what he desires is relationship with his people. Exodus 20 says, God shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Evidence of that love is here is listening, it's hearing, it's cherishing, it's keeping his word and his commandments. So if you look there at 1525, go ahead and flip there. 1525 this is the first grumbling episode. He tests the people of Israel to see, look there, if you will diligently listen to the voice of your Lord, your God. And do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes. And there he promises healing. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians for I am the Lord, your healer. You turn over to 16.4, the second grumbling episode. He says, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And this expectation that they would love him is entirely normal. He is their creator after all. He is their maker, the one who, according to his grace, entered into a covenant with them. He is the Lord who is with them. And he wants the people to know, or sorry, he wants to know if his people will give him their hearts. The parents, you know what this is like. Children of parents, you know what this is like. Parents, if you had a child that coldly took with what you provided, but did not love you as their provider, how would you feel? Wouldn't that be ingratitude? Wouldn't they just simply desire to take advantage of you and depend upon you for what you can give them and supply them, as opposed to the fact that you are, in fact, their very own mother. You are, in fact, their very own father. Unfortunately, I'm guilty of this sin. The ungrateful child says, give me my allowance, give me my food, give me my birthday presents, but forget you as my parent. Little does that child know that while he takes and takes and takes the benefits of loving parenting, he spurns the very love from where those gifts come from. This is what God wants. He wants relationship, not cold-hearted obedience. But he wants a relationship. You know, you know, in this testing, some people think this testing is doing, is simply what God does uh, as if he's some sort of in, insecure person. <laughs> think of the insecure boyfriend or girlfriend testing the other party. The insecure part doesn't know whether or not to commit, and so they test. They want to know how faithful the other party is going to be before they commit all the way. That's not what's going on here. God had already committed to them. He had already committed to delivering them. He's already entered into covenant with them. He's already pledged his steadfast love for them. So his testing of his people works in such a way to expose their own lack of love, their own commitment, their frailty, and their sin with the grand purpose of having them see his love 
See his grace, see his perfection, his holiness, all the more, and then go on loving it and entering into it more and more and more. So if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, Christianity is not about cold law. It's about God who created us to be in a relationship with him. He has told us how to live, certainly. Just like any other father would tell his children how best to live life to the full, rules and everything, so God does with his creation. But in light, of the, in light of the rules, you see this commitment of relationship that he desires. Thinking back to Israel in the desert, regarding their tests, unfortunately they fail here every single stop they fail. How do they fail? Well, they grumble. We've seen that already. They also blame. They blame their leaders. They, these, are, these are their God-given leaders. They grumble against Moses then, and then Aaron. And then they even want to kill Moses. <clears throat> but really, in blaming their leaders, they blame their blame falls on the sovereign Lord. Look at uh, 16.8. Turn over there. Moses says, Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. They're blaming the very one who delivered them. And then in their unbelief, instead of embracing God's test of them, they're the ones who end up testing God. You see the irony there? All because of their sin. And 17.7, flip over there. Moses clearly says, why do you test the Lord? And then they go on and ask, is the Lord among us or not? So here they're giving in to fear. They give in to worry. And they decide to test the Lord, accusing him of not doing what he said he was going to do. And so they assert their own sovereignty as if they had any. And their roles are switched. The creation tests their very own creator. Practically, their unbelief and testing shows itself in these kind of just-in-case sins. Just-in-case sins. You know, just in case the Lord doesn't come through, we'd better go and do this particular thing over here. So look there at 16.4. This is an example, 16.4. God tells them to gather only a day's portion of food. Remember, um, God, he had told them he was going to rain down bread from heaven. How awesome is that? Look there, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So they're only supposed to gather one day's portion of food. Why? Why only one day? Well, it's because the Lord wanted to teach them that his word is true and that he actually will continue to rain down bread every single night. He is the Lord after all. This is the refrain, 16.6, look there. Uh, He's determined that they would know that he is the Lord. You shall know that it was the Lord that brought you out of the land of Egypt. It's like they already forgot who he was. And then verse 7, in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. What happens is that there in verse 13 is that God brings quail as well as something called manna. Look there at uh, 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? Which is literally manna. Manna means what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given to you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each one of you as much as he can eat. You shall take each, you shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. An omer was basically two liters of the stuff so that they could eat that much. But look there at verse 20. 
They didn't listen to Moses, right? They failed. They don't listen to the Lord. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. So you see what this is about. God wants them to trust in his word, his word that he would deliver, that he would provide this stuff. And then again, they, they sin there. God insists that his people would rest on the last day of the week, just as he himself did at creation. He tells his people, look there in verse 23, take enough, prepare enough food for on Fridays that lasts on Saturday. For Saturday is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. And then go down to 27. You see there, they, they fail their test. On the seventh day, some of the people went out together, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, that is the people's representative, how long will you, see standing for the many, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. This is another just in case sin, rejecting the Lord's commands in order really that they would deliver themselves. Forget the Lord's wisdom. Forget his deliverance. We need to take care of this. So before they had an alternate version of deliverance, Egypt is better, let's go back. But here they come up with an alternate method of being delivered. It's really funny at the end of the day, though. If you remember, they saw, they witnessed the water turn to blood. They witnessed the frogs inundating the land. They saw the gnats that God had brought. They saw the flies. They saw the Egyptians' livestock die. They saw the hail. They saw the locusts. They saw the darkness. They saw the parting of the waters. And they saw Pharaoh destroyed. But all of a sudden, they're given the desperation to gather as much bread as they could in the morning because they don't know if God's going to come through on his word or not. Just in case the Lord doesn't do what he said just in case he is wrong, just in case he doesn't know what he's doing, just in case he doesn't come through, I'm going to go over here and take care of it myself. Friends, that's us too. The further we are dragged away from our snapshots, the more we feel like we need to do something to get it, don't we? And in fact, the more we feel like God is the one who's keeping us from laying hold of it. And so we blame God. We accuse him of abandoning us and we push him aside. We push his word aside and take matters into our own hands to get your own to get to your own so-called promised land. For you single folks here, let's apply this. For you single folks, think you who, who might think of the promised land as being married. God commands us to marry, he commands his people to marry other Christians. Naturally so, I mean, once again, think of the parental uh, position here. Would you as a parent want your child to marry someone who insists you don't exist? Would you want your children to marry somebody who thinks you are someone who you are not? Of course not. That's why God wants us to marry other Christians, so that we would be able to identify together and say, Yes, that is the Lord. Let's worship him. But friends, in your journey of the Christian life, have you ever been upset with God because... He's not taking you to your own promised land according to your own timeline, marriage. Never feel abandoned by God. Haven't you ever thought about disobeying God's call? And then consider those who actually reject God, who according to the Bible are hostile to God. And then you know what the Israelites are like. Maybe, uh, for the, for the married, married folks, maybe your promised land is perfect marriage. For you gals, where you are romanced into the evening with blissful conversation, 
enraptured with embraces where you are made much of. Dudes here. Maybe your marriage promised land looks like having your needs met without having to cultivate the marriage land. And when that isn't met, when you actually have to put in time, go figure, you despair. Or for you, gal, when you realize that, you know, your dude is a bit of a dud in terms of romance, which is many of us, probably all of us, uh, maybe you despair and you think God has abandoned you. You start dreaming of what it would be like to be married to somebody else. To be in a relationship with someone else. And where you once refused uh, your co-workers flirts, now you start entertaining them. Now you start actually reciprocating them. Taking matters into your own hand. This is your promised land and so you go and get it. In those instances we say, I know the Lord is my shepherd, but he sure stinks. It's time I leave myself. The Lord is the worst shepherd who doesn't know where he is going. He is with us. Is, is he with us in the wilderness or not? And friends, that attitude shows us that we think the Lord is not the sovereign one, but instead he's really our employee. You know, our personal own travel agent where we pull out the old kingdom picture and we say, take us here. And if not, I kick you to the curb. We contract with him as our own personal travel agent and say, you are responsible to getting us to our own desired destination. Christian, you see all the sins involved there? Idolatry. Doubting God's goodness. Falsely accusing God that he actually has the worst out for you. Disrespect of your own sovereign maker. Relying on your own wisdom. Then you got living for your own glory. We are all familiar with this. So friends, if that's you, repent of your sins. This is exactly why the Lord has brought you to this particular point. To see whether or not you will wholly rely on him and his word. And, and in so doing, he reveals where you don't in order that you would. He reveals where you don't in order that you would. This passage, while is frankly quite discouraging, because time and time and time again, they are failing their test here. Uh, but on, the, on another hand, this is very encouraging, this account here. It's strange, right? Because we identify with the grumbling of the Israelites. I can identify with them and that sometimes it feels like my sin is ever before me again and again and again as they're grumbling in all of these episodes. But you, did you notice that in this account, God answers every single one of their grumblings with more grace? He tops their complaints with his grace. I mean, let's just pause for one moment and be enraptured with that God. To meditate on these blissful truths that though he had every right to judge them immediately for their rebellion, he chooses to grant them grace. Now, it isn't necessarily saving grace, but it is grace nonetheless. It's grace of sustenance, of provision. And friends, the end goal of this grace is so that the people of Israel will learn to lean on his gracious character and be secured in it all the more. It's so that they would see his unfailing love for them and be strengthened by it all the more. The testing is to help them rely on the Lord who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. The people of Israel were to see the Lord's grace in the face of their sin and then love it all the more. In every episode of grumbling, God answers in grace. Look at episode one, episode grumbling number one, 1525, 1525. Right? They grumbled because of the bitter water. 1525. Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water. And the water became sweet. 
Now, in terms of an explanation here, some people explain this through a process of using charred wood to work as a water filter like charcoal. I mean, you do research. People have been doing this for thousands of years. Uh, at the same time, there's nothing that stops us from seeing that this is just absolutely miraculous. Just think of all the plagues. God is certainly capable of doing the miraculous here. We know, too, that Jesus turned water into wine. My point here is that God answers their sinful grumbling with the grace of provision. But not only that, though, and here you just see this wonderful picture of God. Look at verse 27 of chapter 15. They came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So on one hand, they're, they're coming to this water and saying, it's so bitter, give us something to eat. And God says, hold on. He makes the water sweet. And he says, okay, I'll lead you to 12 springs of water. Have a bath. Enjoy the bath. And then he says, look, there's 70 palm trees. Most likely these are palm days or date palms where they can eat the wonderful fruit. So there you see God's grace. Episode number two. Here, here they grumble. God, it would have been better if God killed us in Egypt. At least, we would have had, at least we would have had their meat pots. And God answers their grumbling with provision. Look there in 1610. And he answers them not only with food, but also a display of his glory. 16.10, as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, not you will die right now. Not I abandon you. Go find your own way. He says, no, at twilight you shall eat meat, my beloved. In the morning you shall be filled with bread. It's exactly the same things that, that, that they were craving from Egypt. And not only does he give them a little bit, it's that they would be filled with it. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. It's amazing too, in this passage, he also addresses their worrying and anxious and self-dependent, their workaholic hearts. You know how? By giving them... There in 1623, look there, a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath unto the Lord. Of course, this recalls exactly what the sovereign Lord did in the beginning of creation. Six days he created, and the seventh he rested. And this day was to serve as a reminder to the people that sustenance does not finally come from them even, but from the Lord, just as Jesus prayed in the Lord's Prayer. Just think about all the application here. For you who experience this, this workaholism, you, you who are so worried and so self-dependent, you who are given into anxiety. Some of you may be going to work after service and you might be stressed because you need to pay the bills. Here God says, no, I, I command you, set aside a day that is holy unto the Lord. At least he does in the Old Testament here. And he says, you rest. I know your hearts. I know they're worried. I know that they're anxious. And he says, no, you rest. Salvation is of me. And, and that's a reminder, right? Every time we, our heads hit the pillow and we close our eyes is testimony that we are not in control, but the Lord, the sovereign God is. Now, in today's, you know, if we apply it today, you know, we are not commanded to keep the Sabbath any longer. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says the Sabbath rest is in Jesus but nevertheless, you see people carving out time on the Lord's day from the New in, in the New Testament, the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You see, all of a sudden, the Jewish, the Jewish people who grew up in thousands of years of Jewish history and culture, all of a sudden they say, okay, now it's time to gather together on not Saturday, but the Lord's day, that is Sunday. And so we gather here today to, be, to, to hear the preaching of the word of God, to be reminded of the gospel truths, and to find our rest in Jesus. 
And a practical application, while it's not a command, for some of you guys who do, in fact, work on Sundays, have you ever considered, again, this is not a command, but have you ever considered finding a job that doesn't require you to work on Sundays because it is, in fact, the Lord's day? Have you ever considered that Sunday, you know, as you make it a work day, actually decreases your ability to rest in Jesus? It's funny that, you know, once you actually make the Lord's day and carve it out and dedicate it to the Lord, uh, you actually begin to look forward to it so much more. And actually, it actually makes you work really hard on the other six days. Because here on the Lord's day, we rest. Again, it's not a command. God does not judge you and cast you out of the family because you do not keep the Lord's day. But you do see a pattern in the New Testament where the Lord's day is protected and dedicated to the worship of God particularly amongst the congregation. That's episode two, God answers with grace. You see there in episode three, 17 verses two and three, turn over 17 verses two and three. They grumble and they even want to kill Moses. But what does the Lord do? Verse five. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people taking with you some of the elders of Israel and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, that means quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? You see how as the people's sin gets worse and worse, God's grace gets better and better? God's grace becomes greater and greater. Before they were quarreling, they were quarreling about uh, about water that was bitter, they, but they actually had water. Here they're saying there is no water. What do we do? And God says, "You take that inanimate object, you strike it. I'm going to send water flowing from it." Here we have to realize that the people resemble Pharaoh. Did you notice that? They're really behaving like Pharaoh. They complain against God. They threaten to kill the leader of the Lord's people. But yet God moves towards them in grace. And he he tells Moses, says, take the staff. God tells Moses to take it. It's the same staff that was used to turn the Nile into blood. And the staff is not used for judgment, but here for deliverance. Here God tells Moses to use that same staff, not as a sign of judgment, turning good water into bad, but to bring life, living water, out of the rock. You see how the Lord testing his people is a gracious and a kind and his testing is long-suffering. And the Lord's grace tops the people's doubt and sin. Friends, you realize that we are sojourners as well. We didn't come out of a slavery to a nation, but certainly a slavery to sin. As As the Bible says that we are born into sin. We inherit a sin nature and then we actually transgress God's law, and then he saves us through the gospel, and then we are, we are said to be the elect exiles, sojourning from one land to the heavenly land. We are like them, and we suffer from temporary amnesia regarding the glories of Christ, and then the dangers of sin. And so we often look back at Egypt and long to return to those things that appear to offer a false salvation. And in trials and temptations, we often fail. But thank God that despite our turning again and again and again, God's grace tops our sin. For the Christian, those who are truly born again, those who have turned from their sin and believed on him, grace tops our sin over and over and over again. 
Our sin is exposed so that we can own it and then confess it and see the Lord's steadfast love and love the Lord all the more. Yes, sometimes it's difficult. He leads us out. He shows us those snapshots where we cling to those things, where we idolize those things. And he says, let me show you grace to top all of those things. We conclude by way of application. Christians, you realize that the way to battle our struggles and longings from the old kingdom is to keep God's great acts of salvation before you. It's so strange how the Israelites go from praising God, glorying God in 15, to grumbling against them in the very next verse. Sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider He has thrown into the sea. What shall we drink, Moses? We would have rather died in Egypt. And so in the gospel, friends, as the gospel is preached regularly, as we preach it to one another, as we remind one another of the glorious truths, he asks us to replace those snaps with the ongoing story of, revel- of revelation, the story of redemption that's given to us entirely and that God continues to unfold in our very own lives. Israel had the land of promise that they were supposed to keep in front of them. They had Yahweh, the great Lord of all, to keep in front of them. Christians, we have the land of promise where Christ's reign is complete. Where salvation is one day fully realized. Where you will be free from your sin. Where every tear will be wiped away. And where you will know free and full forgiveness into eternity. Where we are finally redeemed. Our bodies, we long for this future redemption. Where that day will become true. And our faith will be no more even because it one day will be sight as we see Jesus face to face. Everlasting inheritance. Protected inheritance that is imperishable and unfading. Where all of our hopes and securities and satisfactions are finally met in Jesus. Which we have tasted, but that day ahead of us, that story ahead of us is what we need to keep in front of us. Friends, if you're visiting with us again and you know yourself not to be a Christian, the point here is not, don't ever think the grass is green or somewhere else. That is not what we're saying here. That would be to get rid of hope itself. Hope is a wonderful thing that speaks of the reality that something will finally satisfy. It just doesn't come in in this particular world here. The answer is to hope in the right thing. It's to acknowledge that our hope lies finally in Jesus Christ and underneath his lordship, under his reign and according to his word. That is, after all, why he came to restore a relationship with sinners so that we might truly live the good life. That is, not the life of riches, not the life free from suffering, but a life reconciled to God, our very Father and Lord. This is why God calls us to live a life in glad submission to him whose word is true. And he proves himself. Here, God had delivered them. Even in the rock, right? Israel strikes, Moses strikes the rock there, and the water flows from it, a symbol of God's deliverance. But did you notice in the passage that Danny read today, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, or sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10. Here the Christian's experience is similar to that of Israel's. They're paralleled here. 
Just as Moses struck the rock, so someone else is struck. Just as Moses struck the rock and living water came from it, so someone else was struck and living water came from him. You look there in verse 4, they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. You see here, friends, that just as God's presence was with the Israelites in the desert, in the rock, in the living waters, God made it flow from the rock, so God's presence is here with us in Jesus Christ. As Christ was struck and living water flowed from it. And now everyone who repents of their sins and believes on him can have salvation. True grace that saves. This is why Christ was sent here to take on flesh, to live a righteous life that we could not because we're sinners, to die the death we should have, bearing the wrath and our judgment that we deserved so that everyone who would turn to him and believe, who would repent of their sin and trust in him, would have forgiveness of sins and life eternal. Reconciliation with God the Father at one with this God. Friends, that's why he sent Christ to remind us that he is a God who delivers. And he calls you to trust in him for deliverance and salvation eternal. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we pray that your glorious gospel would be ever in front of our own eyes. We pray, Lord, that we would be busy doing spiritual good to other people. That we would carve out times in our busy lives uh, to remind others of your magnificent truths. Lord, we know that it is tempting to go back to the old kingdom, to dwell on the snapshots of our old lives. So, Father, we pray that we as a church would come alongside us weary travelers and remind us, Lord, that there is, in fact, a true hope. But the true hope lies in Christ and the gospel. Father, we pray that you would give us an urgency. That you would help us know that even right now there are some of us who are so tired and so tempted. And we long to go back to the old kingdom just like the Israelites did. But Lord, we pray that you would cause us with great urgency to spend time, to exhaust ourselves in helping others walk towards the land of promise where Christ reigns spiritually father we pray that you would make us competent that we would wield the word your word so that other people would know with great certainty and great clarity what the things are that we are to hope in all the blessings of salvation fellowship with jesus christ family here in the local church brotherhood sisterhood and an eternal inheritance in jesus christ Father, we recognize that this is difficult. Sanctification at times is hard. But Lord, we pray that your spirit would in fact guide us and hold us fast. Lord, we proclaim that you are the sovereign God and Lord, we know that you can do it. Just as you did for Jesus, who did not live by bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So Lord, we pray that you would help us by your spirit live according to your word. Hold us fast, we pray, in your power, by your grace until the end. In your name we pray. Amen.